Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Solo Cast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 23rd, 2018, and this is show number 698. Well, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is another episode of Programming by Stealth with Bart Shots, and we spent a fair amount of time going over the homework challenge from PBS 62. The nuances uh, combined with some refresher on how the pieces fit together was something I really needed, so I hope I wasn't alone because I asked a lot of questions in the homework explanation. The new part of the episode is dedicated to the all-important bootstrap button. We'll learn how to turn things into buttons and why you might want to turn things into buttons, and we'll learn how to make button toolbars, which are really slick and pretty. We don't have new homework for this week, but if you're like me, you actually still need time to properly finish last week's homework, so that was okay with me. Apple has accomplished something really extraordinary in the physical design of the Series 4 Apple Watch. They have managed to give us a far bigger display area in a watch that is barely larger than it was in the previous generations. I wanted to figure out a way to convey this to you without just splatting out a bunch of dimensions to you. But I had to start by compiling all of the data, as I do when I dig deep into a topic. I found two useful definitive sources from Apple. The first is at support.apple.com and then slash spec slash Apple Watch. This tool gives you almost every spec I needed with height and width and thickness and weight for each version of the Apple Watch that has ever come out, but it was missing one important spec. This page doesn't show the display area for the different versions. For the display area comparisons, I went to Apple Watch, or apple.com slash watch slash compare. Between these two links and a lot of opening of separate tabs and scrolling around, I was able to make a spreadsheet comparing all of the measurements I found relevant and comparing the new Apple Watch 4 to the older Series 2 and 3. Armed with the specs, I could calculate even more data. I had the width, height, and thickness of all of the watches, so of course I could calculate volume. I had the pixel width and height, so how about the number of pixels? Ooh, with the total number of pixels in the total pixel area, I can calculate the pixel density. And then there's the weight. I wanted to compare apples to apples, literally, and I didn't want to have to figure out every single comparison. So I stuck with the aluminum GPS version of the Apple Watch for all of my comparisons. Obviously, stainless would, would weigh significantly more, and it turns out having cellular in some models does increase the weight a smidge, so I did not take that into account. One thing to keep in mind is that the Series 2 is the exact same size and weight and display area of the Series 3. So if you have a Series 2, as you listen to me describe the differences to the Series 4, the comparison applies to your watch as well. Now, I could take all of those stats and start to calculate the percentage differences between the models for every single measurement. I bet a bunch of you are really hoping I'm going to list them all off for you now, right? Well, it occurred to me that I needed a little bit better way to tell the story. Let's say you already have the bigger Apple Watch Series 3, which is 42 millimeters tall. You heard on the keynote that the new one is bigger. It's referred to as 44 millimeters. The question I sought to answer for you was, how much bigger would that feel and would what would you gain for that bigger size, going from 42 millimeter up to 44? This year's big Apple Watch is only 4% wider and 4% taller, but it's actually 6% thinner. So if you look at the total volume, it's only 1% larger than the older big watch. For that tiny percentage increase in physical size, you get 32% more display area. There is one more cost, though. The 44mm Apple Watch Series 4 weighs 14% more than last year's 42mm Series 3. 
So you get a huge increase in display area with a very minor increase in physical size, but possibly a notable, in, a noticeable increase in the weight. But what about the little watch people? Let's do the same comparisons. The differences in physical dimensions on the smaller watch is even less noticeable. The 40 millimeter Series 4 is only 2% wider and 4% taller than last year's Series 3, but it's 6% thinner. That makes the overall volume of the new smaller watch is actually 1% smaller than it used to be. I have the 38 millimeter Apple Watch, and I've always said that the one thing I did want was thinner, so that sounded great to me. The Series 4 smaller watch does gain weight. In fact, it packs on 13% more weight than the Series 3. However, the new watch packs in a display area that is 35% larger. Now, I just finished saying the one thing I wanted was thinner, but I lied. I wanted two things. I wanted thinner and I wanted a bigger display. But I'd never thought to ask for both at the same time. I thought I'd have to bump up to the big girl watch size to get that bigger display. With all of these great metrics running around, there has to be someone in the audience who did go for the larger Apple Watch originally and is now wondering, what would I lose if I went down to the smaller watch size? Like maybe they went to the the uh, bigger watch size because they wanted that bigger display. But now that the little watch has a bigger display, what would that feel like to them? Well, I ran those numbers too. The comparison I did was the Series 4 40 millimeter Apple Watch versus the Series 3 42 millimeter Apple Watch. So that's the the small new one compared to the big older one. This will, if you do that change, it'll be a huge drop in volume as the new smaller watch will be 7% narrower, 6% shorter, and 6% thinner for a total volume drop of 17% and you would get a 7% drop in weight. So again, you're going from the big watch last year to the small watch this year. But get this, you don't lose anything in the display area. In fact, you get 2% more, even though the Series 4 40 millimeter is so much smaller. How cool is that? My friend Pat did that change, and she's really, really happy. Now, while I'm a data nerd and all these numbers make me feel all warm and fuzzy, I realize that some people work better with pictures. I decided to graph some of what I just told you. I struggled with how to make it tell a story and not be all boring, you know, like the numbers were already. People love to make 3D bar graphs, but you actually lose information if you try to make them pretty that way. It's really hard to see which bar is actually higher when they're kind of slanted in that 3D mode like that. Well, about 100 years ago when I was working, I came out with a style of graph that looks 3D without making it more confusing. Here's the trick. Create a standard boring bar chart. So you've just got, you know, rectangles that are all the same color. Now, select your bars and change the fill from that solid to a gradient. Set it to a linear gradient with the angle of 180 degrees. Then, with the little gradient stop sliders, set the right and left of each bar to the same darker color, so like a dark blue on either side, and then change the middle one to a very light hue of the same color. It makes the columns look like they're cylinders. It's beautiful. You're welcome. So anyway, back to the Apple Watch chart. I figured the most interesting one might be the total display area. I made my pretty cylinders and then painstakingly, and I'm not kidding, painstakingly, drew in some lines to say the percentage differences between the heights of the bars. It was looking pretty good. I showed it to a few people and one of them was Pat Dangler and she said, it needs some pretty pictures. Well, on Apple's comparison page, they have a graphic of the different looks of each of the four watches. 
It's cool because you can see that the Series 3 has a square rectangular area for the face with a significant bezel, but the newer ones have a larger rounded rectangle that more effectively fills the face of the watch. Anyway, Pat suggested I use these pictures to, you know, snazz up my graph. I cut each picture out, opened the crops and preview, used the magic wand to erase the empty white space, then copied each image back into Excel, plopping each one on top of its respective bar. Looks pretty cool, and I think it's a pretty compelling way to tell the story. I then told her there's another really fun way to add pictures to a graph, but it won't help you understand anything at all. It's just funny. In Excel and, you know, probably in Google Sheets, you can click once to select all of the bars in your chart but then click again to select just one of the bars. In the Format Data Point menu, you can change the fill from Fill or Gradient to Picture or Texture Fill. You can select a picture on your desktop, or it'll take whatever you've got in your clipboard. In our example, I have the 44mm Series 4 watch graphic on my clipboard. When I selected it, it made the graphic be the bar, but it stretched the whole height of the bar. And we don't want that. Back in the Format Data Point menu, change the default from Stretch to Stack. Now you have a bunch of adorable little tiny watch faces stacked up to the height of the bar. Like I said, it's really hard to gain any knowledge from this graph, but it's cute. I used to make these at work when I felt like irritating my boss. You know, they'd ask me to make the 278th revision of my budget chart so I'd make them with giant dollar symbols stacked up. They didn't think it was as funny as I did. They had no sense of humor at all. Well, anyway, then I started playing around with how to show the case dimensions in a pretty graph. I didn't want to make four comparison charts for height, width, thickness, and weight, so I combined them into one graph. That took a bit of trickery, though. You notice I said three uh, dimensions in space, and the fourth one was actually weight. Well, the first, uh, let's see, so I had the first ones were in millimeters, and the weight was in grams. I figured out that Excel would happily plot the four data points for weight as as though they were millimeters. But the reason for that is because when I entered the weight data, I created a custom format that said 0.0, quote, G. But Excel ignores that and happily plots it along with the other linear dimensions. But here's the cool part. I can turn on the data labels for just the weight bars, and it looks perfectly reasonable. Anyway, you can see the picture in the show notes, and it does look pretty cool. Now, I'm not sure that's the best chart of the bunch. I like the raw numbers better, especially with the percentages. But if you're visual, it's not bad. But then I had another idea for a visual effect. You may remember a blog post I just did last month entitled Freemium Sketch Helped Me Rearrange the Room of Crap. Well, Sketch lets you do scale drawings. So I thought I'd see if the drawing the watches would help. I wasn't skilled enough to draw the real watches, and I was pretty tired of making pictures. Instead, I just drew rounded rectangles for the outside of the watches. Then I got the idea to plop the two older watches on top of the two newer watches. So all you see is two rounded rectangles on the left for the two big watches and two of the little watches on the right. The funny thing is, as simple as this is, just some rounded rectangles, I think this diagram might be the most compelling imagery of everything I did. You ask why that is? Because the Series 4 watches, which sound so much bigger, barely stick out from underneath last year's counterpart. In other words, you'll never be able to tell the difference in size on your wrist if you go from big to big or from small to small. Every year when the new Shiny comes out, I manage to find a worse way to buy my Apple products. Who can forget the year when the iPhone 4 came out and I stood in line for, how long was 
was it to get it? I think it was like seven or nine hours. I can't remember exactly. I try to forget about it. Then the next time I thought I'd be smarter and I'd wait at home. And while everyone else got their toys first thing in the morning, including my friend Ron, who lives exactly 1.5 miles away from my house, mine didn't come till nine at night. Then there was the year I waited at home all day for the new iPad. I'd ordered one for me and for my friend Diane, only to get a notification at around 4 p.m. saying, no, we're actually not going to deliver it that day at all. I think that was my favorite because I called around and I found them in stock locally, drove outside, drove out and bought them. And as I came home, I found a FedEx truck peeling away from my driveway, having left $1,300 worth of iPads unsigned for on my doorstep as I returned home. Now, last year wasn't as dramatic, but it was still tragic. I was able to order my iPhone at midnight, but Steve's order got messed up and his was going to be delayed by a few weeks on delivery. Because I'm the best wife ever, I got up at 3 a.m. and I met my friend Pat at the Beverly Hills Apple Store to stand in line for him and successfully got him a new phone on day one. Well, this year I managed to find the worst of both worlds, delivery and standing in line. Steve and I hung out with the other Nocilla castaways in the live chat room at podfeed.com slash chat at midnight Pacific time last Thursday night, Friday morning, whatever you want to call it, while we all waited for the store to open. It was a really fun way in a, you know, misery loves company kind of way to buy the the, uh, devices. Steve and I were both successful this time at ordering our iPhone XS and an Apple Watch Series 4 in the first few minutes of store opening with delivery dates of Friday the 21st. For once, this was going to be easy. Well, we were excited waiting for Friday when our new toys would arrive. And then on Wednesday... Two days before delivery date, I was talking to our daughter, Lindsay, on the phone, and she said, you did remember to order my Apple Watch, right? Well, you see, back in early July, Lindsay asked if, for her birthday in early August, she could get a new Apple Watch to replace her Series 0 that was in seriously bad shape. I advised her to wait for the Series 4 to come out, and she thought that was a swell idea. So she's already waited a month and a half for her birthday present, and I totally forgot to order it for her. I felt horrible. Now, Lindsay is the sweetest person I've ever met in real life, and I do not say that lightly. She is the sweetest person I know, and she started to comfort me as I began to wail about what a bad mom I am. I suggested I should probably just let her have mine, and I wait the extra month. And uh, she said, no, I couldn't let you do that. Not sure she meant it. Then she mentioned that she'd never told me which watch she wanted. I showed her the options and the different colors and everything. And I mentioned, you know, there is a new gold watch. And she immediately said she wanted that color. She said she'd rather get the color she wanted a month later than get the wrong color on day one. Yay! I'd ordered the silver aluminum so I didn't have to give her mine and she'd have to wait a month for hers. See, I'm still a bad mom. But then my friend Ed Tobias uh, said he was going to go stand in line to try to get an Apple Watch. You'll remember Ed is the guy who built a web server on a Raspberry Pi and then wrote his own website in Bootstrap. Anyway, Ed asked me for advice on how early to get in line. Well, I stood in line last year to get Steve's iPhone with Pat. When we did that, we went to Beverly Hills at 3 a.m., That was way overkill. We were completely alone until, I don't know, around six. And most people didn't start strolling into line until around eight. And then the store opened at 10. Well, since Ed was going anyway, I figured I might as well try to stand in line and get an Apple Watch for Lindsay on day one. I wasn't really hopeful because I figured the Apple Watch was going to be a real hot seller. Like maybe you could get a phone, but I wasn't sure you'd be able to get a watch. 
We strolled into Beverly Hills at 8 a.m. and get this, we were able to walk right in and buy the watches right then, two hours before the store was even scheduled to open and there was no line. That was amazing. Now, the odd thing was they didn't have many iPhone XS's, but they had a fair number of the Apple Watch. By the way, I am not going to be snarky about the whole 10S versus XS thing, because if you read it out loud, it's really hard to say 10S. So just expect from now forward, I will say XS, I will say 10S, I will mix and match them within the same sentences. So I don't want to hear anything from you guys. I'm not even going to try because this one is too hard. Well, the good news is that Lindsay, uh, I was able to get Lindsay her watch, and I wasn't the worst mom ever. But the comedy is that I then had to go home and wait all day till around 4 p.m. for my toys to come. So I managed to wait in line and wait at home for the worst of both worlds. Well, it's too early now to give you any kind of detailed thoughts on the new devices, but I've got a couple of first impressions that I think uh, might be helpful. As always, it's important to understand the perspective somebody's coming from when they describe them to you. Let's start with iPhone. Before the iPhone XS and XS Max were announced, we told Lindsay and her husband Nolan that we would give them our iPhone Xs when the new models came out. Lindsay has a 7 Plus, so it's in reasonably, you know, it's a reasonably good upgrade for her, but yeah, you know, maybe not essential. But poor Nolan has an iPhone 6 Plus, which is in really poor shape. I suspect a new battery is in order, but he never did the battery replacement. In any case, it's four years old and the poor thing is really showing its age. However, when the new models were announced, my heart didn't exactly go pitter-pat with excitement. I know, it's got a faster CPU, bionic for crying out loud. It's got a faster GPU and, I don't know, AI, blah, 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 blah. All right, they said some camera enhancements, but nothing magical like the invention of portrait mode and dual lenses with optical image stabilization. Even the ability to change the depth of field on the new phone kind of made me yawn because you can already do that with the iOS app Focus for any iPhone that supports portrait mode. But we did promise the kids that we were going to give them our phones. So um, you know what? We went ahead with the purchase of two iPhone XS. Maybe I should say iPhones 10s. That might work. Anyway, the new models come in 64 gigabyte, 256 gigabyte, and 512 gigabytes. Now, you might think that Allison, with 70,487 images in her photos library, would be able to justify the 512 gigabyte iPhone. But before order day, Steve and I both checked our iPhone 10 storage, and I wasn't even using 64 gigabytes. I was really close. I think it was like 62 gigabytes. But it really shows you how magical iCloud Photo Library is. Apple simply manages the size of my images so they all fit nicely. There was no way I was going to spring for a 512 gigabyte iPhone. Now, migration to the new phone was interesting. In the old days, I always did an iTunes backup. Then the iCloud backup got so good that the iTunes method just didn't seem that necessary and actually took longer than iCloud. The tricky part is to make sure the workout data is preserved. That's if you're a fan of exercise like we are. We've got data going back to 2015, and we really didn't want to lose all of these fun metrics. After our iCloud backups were restored to our new phones, we discovered that everything didn't come over properly for workouts. It was kind of weird. We looked at the calendar view in workouts where you see your little circle rings, your progress rings for stand, exercise, and calorie burn, and they went all the way back to when we first got our watches. But when Steve went into any given day, none of them had his actual workouts. 
So he couldn't see his runs, his lifting, his walk. None of them was in, were in there. Everything was gone. Both of us were missing some of the achievement badges you can earn, such as the one for walking or wheeling a certain distance on Earth Day. Oddly, we weren't missing all of them, just some. We were chatting a bit with uh, Pat Dengler on, uh, on Telegram, and in that discussion, I was able to find an article on Mac Rumors that might explain those missing badges. Evidently, there's a bug in iOS 12 that's causing that problem. We're going to see how that all works out. Well, my phone after the iCloud um, backup was was uh, brought down to my new phone was in pretty good shape, but all of those 70,487 photos were going to have to be recompressed and brought back down to the phone. So we both decided, let's go back to the iTunes backup method. One caution, and I've mentioned this year over year, your workout data is considered health data. Apple considers this your private information. So in order to retain this data, when you back it up to iTunes, you must check the box for encrypted backups. So we backed up our old phones to iTunes. We unpaired our new watches from the new phones. We removed the new phones from Find My iPhone. We logged out of iCloud. We reset the new phones to factory settings. Then we plugged the new phones into our computers and restored them from their iTunes backups. The good news is that all of this worked. We got all of our workouts and my photos were all there in a much shorter time than it was going to take via downloading from the cloud. I have to tell you though, Right now, it says it's now uploading all those to the cloud, but at least I can see them on my phone. Anyway, we got a few more badges back too, and the rest will probably come along with an iOS update. I did take some photos to compare the iPhone X to the XS, and I've got some opinions, but I'm going to save that till next week when I can take the time to really explain what I've learned. The one problem with restoring a backup, though, is that your new phone might not seem that much different. The iPhone 10 was a huge jump from the iPhone. What did I have? I had a 7 Plus. Yeah, it was a 7 Plus. So I went from the Plus size to the iPhone 10. And that was a huge jump. It was a completely different phone. It felt truly new when we got those. But so far, the iPhone 10s feels kind of like the same phone I had before. You know, it's got the same desktop background. It's got the same wallpaper. Yes, it still has Bert, Brett Terpstra's weirdo face as my background. I got to change that soon. Anyway, I'm hoping we'll start to notice new features over time, but uh, David Roth is trying to convince me that I should trade this back in and get a Max because, uh, you know, it'd be different. Well, the Apple Watch Series 4 does feel much different than my Series 2. The main thing about it is the screen. I've already talked about the maths of how the screen has changed, and in real life, it feels positively spacious. I mean, I told Steve that I looked at the face and I feel like I'm looking at his watch. As the math would suggest, the overall size of the watch doesn't feel very different at all. Probably the biggest place I noticed the much larger larger screen is in typing in the passcode when I first put it on the watch. It would often take me an extra try to type it in with those tiny blocks on the 38mm watch, but on the 44mm series, they're huge. I think it's faster than my Series 2 watch, but it's not, you know, blow my hair back faster. I'll have to play with it more with more apps on it over time to be sure. So far, the big things that I'm noticing are actually from watchOS 5. I love that Workouts warns you that you forgot to stop or start a workout, for example. I know this is weak sauce in terms of my normal depth of review, but I promise to give you more info about it over time. Heck, I think it's possible you can find other people talking about these new toys, right? As you're playing with your new Apple toys, or if you've got older Apple toys and you just want to dress them up to feel like new... Perhaps instead of paying the Apple tax, you might want to check out all of the iPhone cases over on Amazon. 
I just found a really interesting Spigen Slim Armor case for iPhone 7 and 8. It's got a secret hidden compartment that slides open on the back to carry your ID and, and probably your credit card too. It has 2,329 reviews and four and a half stars. Might want to go check that out myself. Well, maybe 50 bucks for a watch band from Apple just seems like silliness. Amazon has a plethora of knockoff watch bands that look pretty good. The soft nylon loop is only $10 from Yunsea, for example, and it looks just like the one that was on the uh, the watch that I bought for Lindsay. Sure, it might not last a really long time, but guess what? Both Steve and my $40 silicone iPhone 10 cases fell apart less than a year old. I've got chunks falling off of mine. Well, I put a bunch of links uh, to the Amazon things I've talked about in the show notes and look for in there for fun ways to dress up your new or old devices and save a lot of money. If you use those Amazon affiliate links to start your search for the perfect band or case, a small percentage may go to help support the show. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchatz. How are you today, Bart? I am doing just fine. Since this is literally, what is it? How long am I after five o'clock? It is six hours and 18 minutes into my two weeks of holidays. <laughs> Woo! Yay. Finally. This is the most deserved oh. holiday I've heard of in a long time for anybody. And the most postponed. But anyway, the, the joys of working in academia, or not academia, education. Well, the techie <laughs> part of education. That's, that's probably the better way to put it. Um... When the summer is the only time you're allowed to do big changes, because otherwise there's all these pesky students doing all this education stuff getting in your way. It's terrible. Can't do IT with all of them around. (laughs) Anyway, yes, I'm on my holidays and I'm darn happy about it. So. Well, very good. Let's do some security then. Indeed. So let us pick up pretty much where we left off last time. So last time we talked about Apple removing uh, Adware Doctor from the Mac App Store because it was pulling people's browser histories out of their browsers, obviously, and sending it off, selling it basically for profit. And when they were caught, Apple did eventually remove them, but not until it became a public hoo-ha, whereas they had in fact been told by security researchers months previously and hadn't acted. So they, yeah, they did the right thing in the end, but they didn't really come out of it smelling like roses. But that story was breaking as we recorded last time, and there was another shoe hanging in the air just about to drop, and it dropped very shortly after we finished recording. So it's not just that one app that was thrown into the App Store for for sending up browser histories, and three other apps from an, an actual reputable vendor were also caught and removed. And in this case, we're talking about Trend Micro, who are a, a security company who have... Well, we regularly cite Trend Micro, actually. They, their research arm does good research, and they're... I mean, yeah. I don't use their products, but they're not... They don't have a reputation for being, you know, bleepware. They're perfectly <laughs> legitimate, you know. But they uh, made a bit of a boo-boo. And anyway, the the, the the TLDR version is that Dr. Cleaner, Dr. Antivirus, and Dr. Archive were thrown out of the Mac App Store because they did indeed upload your browser history to Trend Microservers. Now, oh, some differences. No. There are some differences. Yeah, it's, it's not good, right? That That's not what's supposed to happen. And that's not... They say they didn't even mean to do it, and I actually believe them. Um, but anyway, we, so th- there are some differences here. So this wasn't a continuous upload of the information for profit. This was a once-off at the point that the app first runs, as it was basically setting itself up. It would do a one-off capture of the last week's worth of browsing and send that up to Trend Micro servers. 
Um, and this is functionality that originated in the antivirus products. And the idea was that it would scan your browser history to see if you'd recently infested yourself with some, you know, bleepware. And they say that they accidentally used too much standard code in their other apps and basically ended up taking with them functionality they hadn't intended to take with them. And hence, these apps did this on their first launch. So that sounds a little more forgivable? Like it's it, it, well, yeah. not malicious? Yes, that is it exactly. It's, I would go as far as to say careless as opposed to malicious. And, you know, careless isn't good. So it's not like, oh, yeah, no, this is fine. It's like, no, no, this is not fine. But there is still a difference between being lax about privacy and actively selling your users' privacy. So it, it's not the same, but it's not good. And Trend Micro, gonna, they're going to suffer some reputational damage from this, which is a pity because, like I say, their research arm is actually quite good. And we, we've regularly cited research from their researchers on, on this segment. Yeah. Would you still... I mean, you'd still trust the research, though, right? Right, yeah, because... that just give you pause. Yeah, now, see, I was never a user of their apps anyway, because I'm not a big believer in third-party security apps on the Mac. I'm sort of... Right. You know, I, I just use Apple's tools, really. Um, and, if, yeah, I don't know who I'd use, actually, if, if I was going to use someone. I, I think... Sort of because they have the best blog, I would go with Intego, I think. But I'm not sure if that's a good way to judge a company. On the other hand... If they can write well about stuff and show a good understanding, maybe that is a reason to trust the company. I don't know. Anyway, I don't, so it doesn't matter. We don't have to. <laughs> yeah, yet, anyway. We may yeah. someday, and you know, I, I have no illusions that that day could be any moment, but it's not right now. Anyway, so that was a follow-up to something we were talking about. And then there's another follow-up. So we have, in previous weeks, reported two stories as being unrelated, because at the time, they didn't. there was no pattern yet. So it's a few weeks ago now, there was a major uh, security breach at Ticketmaster in the UK. They're a, I don't know if they're worldwide or just a UK and Ireland company, but they are... Ticketmaster is here. Okay, right. Well, okay. Well, Ticketmaster, I think they're originally UK. Either way, their UK branch lost like lots and lots of thousands and thousands and thousands of people's credit card numbers because their website got hacked and some malicious JavaScript was inserted into their checkout page to pilfer... It's basically intercept the credit card numbers complete with those three-digit verification codes, which are never, ever, ever stored on websites by design. But of course, if you inject yourself into the browser and catch it as it's being entered by the user, well, then you've got it, haven't you? Anyway, they were able yeah. to pilfer this, exfiltrate it to their own servers, and basically steal hundreds of thousands of credit card numbers. And that was a few weeks ago. And then the last time we recorded, we reported a very, very similar story about the British Airways website having captured hundreds of thousands of people's credit card numbers in the same way, also including that three-digit verification code. Well, now it turns out that, that those two attacks were by the same criminal gang, and they didn't hmm. stop there. Uh, this week, I am sorry to report that their next victim was Newegg. Ooh, that's and, too close to home with the nerds here. Yes, it is. And basically, for about a month, Newegg's website had this code yeah. injected into it, capturing oh, all the credit card numbers. So, uh, help me out here. If if they know it's the same criminal, criminal gang, does that mean they know who it is? Not necessarily. You can know that it's, you know, you can recognize it being the same code. You can recognize it going to the same servers in some sort of country where police don't have treaties. I mean, we we know we know that Fancy Bear is the Russian government, but it doesn't help us stop them. We we know when North mm. Korea gets up to stuff, and it doesn't help us stop them. And we know when the mafia well, yeah, do but real like world crimes. That's like a whole crimes. country. <laughs> well, no, because the government of a whole country. Yeah, but 
cyber criminals are, are as organized as the mafia in, in many senses and as hard to yeah. capture sometimes yeah. and as good at their job, unfortunately. So for a well-organized gang, I'm afraid to say no, it's, it's not sufficient. Shoot. Um, yes. By the way, uh, Ticketmaster was in the news just yesterday for um, they are supposed to be the people who you buy legitimate tickets through, not scalpers, and yeah. it, helping keep scalping prices down. They've been selling tickets by the tens of thousands to scalpers. Oh, for Pete's sake. Yeah, exactly. It's not illegal. <sighs> it's certainly immoral. By most people's yep. uh, judgment, but uh, yeah, it couldn't happen to nicer people. But it wasn't them; it was their customers that got screwed in this. That's, of that's course, awful. it is. That's how this. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's not anything you can do to protect yourself from that, really, right? I mean, if you're going to buy anything online, well, a- Apple Pay, actually, Apple Pay, yes, because they're one-time and, credit card numbers. Uh, Android Pay. Yeah, any of these s- systems that that create individual one-time numbers are immune to this kind of attack because once they've been used once. They become useless. Therefore, the attacker has captured. It's the equivalent to capturing your one-time password for two-factor auth. It's useless in the future. Yeah, yeah. Just another reason to use Apple Pay everywhere you can, online and off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, it's big news here that uh, CVS finally picked up Apple Pay. CVS oh, was one of the companies that was going with Walmart with that current C nonsense. Yeah. You remember that? They were one of the companies. So that's why they held out until now. And they've just finally, uh, finally folded. So I am super happy. That is like my, I probably buy more individual items there than any other store that's, you know, physical. I still feel so bad for you guys because there's those just, the concept here of someone supporting one particular NFC versus another is just utter nonsense. In the, in, here in Europe, yep. there there are these things called standards, and all the terminals accept the NFC standard, and it doesn't matter whether you're an Android user or an Apple user, it all just works everywhere. Yeah, they didn't every take shop. anybody's. No, they didn't take anybody's. It's not that they took one and not the other. They didn't take anybody's. Okay, well, there's no one here. There's no. I don't think there's a single store in Ireland whose, car, whose credit card terminal can't take NFC. Yeah, by the way, to the listeners, without telling Bart, I checked to see, I figured he had to be lying about that. I could find no evidence that there was a single uh, uh, Irish store that didn't have NFC. Yeah, because we pushed out chip and pin, you know, a few years ago. And at the same time, those terminals pretty much all had the NFC stuff built in. And yeah. our well, banks are there, very Bart. proactive. I, I thank this goodness you are. supposed to be a happy joy, joy day. <laughs> no, I, I'm really happy for you, but I'm so, it still perplexes me that such a, Tech, you know, a comp- a country with such a reputation for being the technological lead. All of our big tech companies are headquartered over with you guys, like the Apples, the Googles, the Microsofts. They're all yours. Mm-hmm. And somehow, when it comes, very big though. Yeah, but credit like money. You think you'd be experts at money? Anyway, I don't know. It, it just baffles me. I, it's that I don't understand, rather than you know that I'm making fun of you or anything. I'm just like, but how? How? Anyway, ah. Anyway, we have two security mediums, unfortunately, and, well, one of them's good news, but one of them isn't, so let's start bad. Uh, There is a new variant of an old attack. Uh, It was called cold boot last time, and so we're referring to this new variant as cold boot as well. So what's at issue here is what your laptop does as it goes between different levels of sleepiness, so the, mm. the the shallowest level of sleep is called 
your machine being suspended in the in terms of the APIs that power this kind of stuff. And when your machine is suspended, RAM is kept fully powered up, and it's basically the rest of your computer is asleep, but your RAM is still fully awake and being kept alive, which is draining battery power. So your computer won't stay in that mode forever. But while it's in that mode, it's really, really quick to, to start up again because it doesn't have to reload things into RAM. And so you can pick up where you left off very quickly. So generally speaking, if you have a Mac and you close the screen over, it'll go into suspended mode first and it'll stay there for about eight hours and only then will it go into a deeper sleep. And PCs will generally have the same default behavior that their first level of sleep is to suspend themselves and then they might go into hibernation later. But when security researchers basically discovered a mistake in the way the API works... So that you can, if you get hold of someone's computer, so you need physical access, so you need to get hold of someone's computer while it's in this suspended level of sleep, and then power it up again by booting it into an OS of your choosing, uh, by shoving a USB key into it or whatever, and... The the OS of your choosing must be teeny-weeny tiny, so that it uses almost no RAM. Hmm. And... What the exploit does is it stops the computer blanking the RAM from the previous time it was booted. And so you just read all the RAM out of the system from the last fully running OS, which includes the encryption key for your full disk encryption. Aww. Thereby allowing you to decrypt the drive because you have the decryption key. No hard, no brute forcing of any kind. You just grab the key and let yourself in. Now, so... Some silver linings here. So the first thing to say is when the machine goes into its very deepest sleep, hibernation, this problem goes away because to come out of hibernation, you must enter your key again, your password again to get your decryption key back into RAM. So basically the decryption, the, the, the keys are scrolled when you go into the deeper sleep. In fact, the whole of RAM is flushed when you go into the deeper sleep because in the deeper sleep, what you do is you write RAM to hard disk and then you actually power the machine off completely. And so there's nothing left hmm. running using power. And to come out of that, the APIs function correctly. There's no mistake in the APIs, and they will not give up that precious key without you entering your password again, which is how it should be. But that's not a normal hibernation. I mean, you have to actively do that. Uh, well, a Mac will do it over time, your- right? So on a Windows machine, you can actually choose... Uh, in the start menu, I think you can choose between sleep and hibernate. Okay. On a Mac, it will do it over time. So if you put your machine into sleep and then leave it at sleep for a while, you'll often find that when you flip the lid up, nothing happens and you hit the power button and then the bar goes across the screen and then you're straight to your desktop. So it's like, oh, you're booting from scratch. Oh, wait, no, I'm right where I left off. What? Oh, I have seen that. That's hibernation waking up. Oh, I did not know that. Apple are very subtle about it. So... On Windows, I do have to. I just as a little side note, my Mac has not slept in like three months. Every morning when I wake it up, it's hot, Ooh. and I don't know why. If if I unplug it from everything and close the lid, it'll sleep. But that's it. If it's plugged into my monitor or plugged into my dock and my monitor or just my dock, it doesn't sleep, which so, is neato. Right. So something is keeping it awake. That's that's most yep. annoying. Most annoying. An activity monitor says nothing is keeping it awake. You know, there's a, you can look in there to see what's keeping it from sleeping, and it says, "Nope, everything's good. We're great, Allison." Must be at a hardware level. Yeah. Well, poop. <laughs> anyway. Yes. No. Oh yeah. So on Windows, there's actually a registry key you can set to basically tell Windows to skip over sleep and go straight to hibernation. Hmm. Um, but I'm not aware of anything similar on the Mac. Um. There is a lot of discussion going on with with OS vendors to find a workaround for this 
problem with how the Sleep API is written. So there may well be a, so an OS update coming out for everyone soon. Uh, in the meantime, though, you should treat a sleeping laptop as something that you shouldn't leave lying around unattended. Hmm. Now, this is not... Okay, there is another sort of silver lining, right? So this involves someone getting your laptop while it's in sleep mode, then plugging a USB stick into it, rebooting it, and then copying all your data off. So it's not like the, the, the there was a time when you could shove something into a FireWire port and basically steal all of RAM in seconds with, with a thumb drive. This is not one of those where if someone turns their back, they have your data and they're gone in 10 seconds. They're going to need to actually take your laptop and do stuff with it. So it's it, it's not like if you leave it for 10 seconds, your data could be gone. It's not that kind of okay. attack. But it does mean that if you're going to be leaving your laptop in the car, maybe shut it all the way down hmm. until there's an update for this. Or at least be aware that if someone is determined and they can get at your laptop, they can. This is now a theory. This is now a possibility. So if you're the CEO of an important company with valuable data, maybe keep your laptop in your briefcase and don't leave it sitting in the car. Just bring it with you. You know, the smaller and lighter it is, the easier that is to do. So it's, right. I wouldn't panic because this is it's not like this is going to happen every five minutes. But if you have high value stuff, you should be aware that this attack is real and this attack is not fixed as of right now. And it may not be for some months or... It may prove that we have to wait for new hardware to fix this or new versions of the firmware or something. Mm. So, you know, basically be wary is what I'm saying, which is why this is a medium because, you know, it's not really... no answer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, security medium two is one of those, okay, folks, any of you who've lit your hair on fire, please put it out. (laughs) So the whole internet went crazy because Apple was upfront and honest about the fact that it's fighting fraud by using your device's activity to figure out if it's plausibly real or not. Basically, robot detection by seeing that a device is used in a normal human-like way, which is pretty much how captures and stuff, the good captures have been working for ages and ages and ages. I mean, you know you know that tick box everyone mocked mercilessly where you just tick, I am not a robot, and it believes you? It's not believing yeah. you. What it's actually done is, is look through all of your browser history to make sure that you're behaving like a normal human being. You've been on 20 websites. You've Your cookies are all over the place. It's basically using the tracking that's also used to sell you ads to watch you across the internet and decide whether your behavior is plausible. So to fake you becomes way harder because you're doing normal human things all the time. And so when you finally then come to a website, you just tick the box and it goes, yeah, yeah, I've been watching you. You're fine. And it lets you in. That's how that works. It's not magic. It's basically spying on you and checking that you're being human. Before you go on to the next, uh, to what this is actually about, if if Apple in Mojave is getting rid of all that fingerprint data, is that going to make it harder for us to say we're not robots? Might do. It plausibly, mm. genuinely might do. Now, there's a lot of signals, right? Google never use one signal for something. Google use lots of signals, and then every signal adds to their confidence. So one of the signals they use is a signal that's always going to be there, which is basically, are you moving the mouse in a human-like way? Humans are jerky humans don't move with with direction they don't you know they're not like i'm going from here to here i shall move in a straight diagonal line that is exactly the shortest distance humans overshoot and humans undershoot and humans also while they're reading tend to jiggle the cursor around and it sends a float where you're currently reading and i'm for one i'm forever highlighting things in a page and things like that so humans do dumb things with their mouse and that's another signal that is actually used by those capture things you know are, are you behaving in a stupid inefficient human way so there's all sorts of signals. 
Um, so it probably raises the probability that you're going to get asked how many storefronts there are in this grid of nine pictures, but it by no means oh, guarantees it. I've been getting it. that a lot lately. I hate those. Yeah, that's basically what that's what recapture does when it doesn't have enough other signals. Basically, when the spying hasn't worked, it then goes, oh, fine, do some visual image recognition, please. Ugh. Which one of these is a bus? Nope, you got it wrong. Okay, how many of these are a crosswalk? Okay, wait, no, 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 no. Which one of these are a storefront? Not that that didn't just happen today. Yes, no, the storefront is really popular. As are road signs, I think they're using us to teach their driving cars, is my personal yeah, theory. Yeah, I think so, because that one was hard. It's like, I don't know, give me something else, make it easier. Question. Spot the, the truck. That one was easy. Spot the truck yeah. is the one that really gets me, because I'm sitting there going, do you mean truck in the European sense, or do you mean truck in the American sense? Because we Europeans <laughs> wouldn't consider a pickup truck a truck. Oh, uh, what is it? We don't have them over here. We, oh. don't, <laughs> we don't know what they are. <laughs> to us, a truck is what you guys would call a big rig. Okay, okay. Anyway, uh, so the model is similar. The implementation is completely different. All right, Apple are not interested in seeing improving your human on the internet. Apple are interested in improving your human when you go to buy stuff in, in their various stores. And so in iOS 12, Apple are using information available to the operating system to see if you're behaving like a not robot on your iPhone or your, your iOS device in general. Um, and they they have updated their private... The reason we know about this is because they've updated their privacy statement to say that among the signals being included is the number of emails you receive and send and the number of messages you receive and send. Now, Hmm. they stress very clearly that the way this works is that all of the calculation is done on device. And the input to the calculation never leaves the device. And this is the right way to do it, right? You don't let the cloud determine this stuff. You do it on device, right? Your operating system is doing all of this for you. Your operating system is actually what's reading those emails. Your operating system is, is what is sending and receiving those messages. You are not trusting... Apple with anything you don't trust them with the moment you use iOS, right? You you cannot have Apple's code not read your email because otherwise you can't read your email. So what matters is that it never leaves the device. It's also why when Apple do their Siri stuff, they make Siri do the stuff on device instead of in the cloud, right? It means that Siri can safely read everything you type and then give you suggestions. You know, why don't you set up a Siri shortcut for text by bomb or whatever? It can do that because it's doing it all on device. So they calculate on device using an algorithm and they don't reveal the nature, they don't reveal the detail of the algorithm. They just reveal that it, it includes as the information it processes number of messages and numbers of, number of emails. But they don't tell you what the algorithm is, of course, because if they told you that, then you could fake it easily. Mm-hmm. And of course, the algorithm is almost certainly going to change every couple of weeks because that's, it's a cat and mouse game. And so you can't set the cat in stone. Anyway, the key point is that the device calculates this, not the cloud. And the only thing that goes up to the cloud is is an output, which is a number which ranks your phone's trustworthiness on a scale. I don't know. They don't actually say what the scale is, but let's imagine it's a scale between 0 and 1. So it might say your trustworthiness score is 0.8 or 0.4 or whatever. So the only thing that leaves is one single number which obviously tells Apple nothing about how many emails you receive or something. It's just a single number. And then they only keep that number temporarily in the cloud. And they lay this out both in the privacy policy and they've actually answered media questions about this, which is very unusual, where they again Hmm. stress that they put a lot of effort into designing this in such a way that it allows them to 
counteract fraud while completely protecting your privacy. So this this number that you get, I get seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does seven mean? It's a score of how human-like your behavior is, and that will then, on the cloud side, be included in a calculation along with everything else that the banks already use to figure out how, if, the, if the transaction is fraudulent or not. So there's, again, it's lots of signals go in to decide whether or not oh, okay. to raise a fraud flag. And what Apple were finding it- is false positives, and they're... The, their stated aim with this is to prevent false positives. This is all on the phone we're talking about. So this doesn't have anything to do with wiggling your mouse or hovering or anything. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we discovered that in, in Mac OS, when they release the final version of Mojave next week, okay. that its its privacy policy will also have this language added. But right now, the one that's out is iOS, and the one whose new privacy statement we have is iOS. And this wasn't done in secret. This wasn't discovered because someone caught Apple doing something. This was discovered because Apple wrote it into their um, privacy statement. Basically said, we are doing this. So they effectively announced it. And that's how it should be, right? That That's how you're supposed to t- treat people's privacy. So I don't understand why there's a controversy about this. It's like, what, you mean Apple are doing the right thing for the right reasons and we should be angry? <laughs> why? Right. <laughs> so anyway, just in case anyone's panicking, because, of course, headlines... Headlines can be factually correct or still completely misleading. And there's, I've seen right. a lot of that going on. They're they're trying, the poor dears. Well, they're, they're desperate for your clicks, not for your education. Right, right, absolutely. So, notable security updates. Patch Tuesday has been and gone. Important updates from Microsoft and Adobe, including the standard Windows and Flash stuff. The Windows one is kind of important because it fixes a zero day being actively exploited in the wild. So, don't be delaying with your Patch Tuesday updates. And then Apple have released many updates, but not quite at all because we're still waiting on Mojave. Um... But they have released iOS 12, watchOS 5, tvOS 12, and Safari version 12. And all of those contain both security updates and feature updates. So the feature updates obviously get all the headlines. But they do also contain security patches. And actually, Safari in particular is noteworthy because Apple are continuing to improve their tracking prevention. So they're they're tweaking their various algorithms and they're making they're reducing the browser's fingerprint again, and they're basically continuing to harden the browser against tracking. Does it does it look to you from what you've read that Safari twelve does include those changes we were just talking about about the uh, getting rid of the fingerprinting? Yes, they well, uh, yes, they they yes. Yeah, because we talked about that once when the latest, the next version was announced at WWDC, and that is in there, and right. that is now. But I happening. thought, that, but I thought that came with Mojave. You're saying Safari 12 came with it, so whether you go to Mojave or not, you'll get that. That is that is correct. Based on everything oh, I've read good. this week, that is correct. Which is great. They also tightened down on uh, a certain certain classes of uh, browser extensions. So if you have a browser inst- extension that was installed from outside of the extension store front, if you will, mm-hmm. it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, and I think... So you, actually, I've been trying to find an excuse to have this conversation, but you've just given me one, which is brilliant. So <laughs> okay. it just occurred to me while I was out on the bike that security goes through phases, right? It, there was a time on this segment when you and me spent months talking about PDF vulnerabilities. Because the attackers realized yeah, that yeah. the low-hanging fruit was PDF readers because the PDF language 
is extremely complicated. The spec is horrific. Therefore, everyone who implements a PDF parser has probably made a million and one mistakes. Therefore, it's bug heaven. Therefore, this is a great place for hackers to go. And so they hammered on that for a couple of years and we had PDF update after PDF update after PDF update. And now all the low-hanging fruit is gone and that sort of went silent. And then there was a while where it was flash, 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 flash. And, you know, before that, we had a time where it was the core OS that was riddled with bugs. And so these things come in these waves. I think we've started a new wave. I think the new pattern that's going to keep hitting us over and over and over again is browser plugins. I think Hmm. that's where the focus is. And I think Apple are basically stepping out ahead of this one and saying, you know something, we should tighten this up a bit. And if you read some of the plans for the next few versions of Firefox and the next few versions of Chrome, because they all release their roadmaps, they are all locking down their APIs. They are all shrinking what plugins can do. They're all basically trying to keep those plugins on a tighter leash because plugins are where it's at at the moment for security researchers. So I'm reading from uh, How to Geek, and they're saying, uh, just to let people know exactly what uh, Apple has said, uh, support for developer-signed Safari EXTZ, Safari extensions, and Safari 12 on macOS has been removed. They no longer appear in Safari preferences, cannot be enabled. Uh, you get a warning telling you these uh, these will not load. But they also say the ones installed from the Safari extensions gallery are deprecated with Safari 12. Submissions to Safari Extensions Guide would no longer be accepted. Wow, that seems like they're locking so, them down to the point of toodle pip and goodbye, or maybe there's a new API about to arrive. That's well, interesting. The last sentence is developers are encouraged to transition to Safari app extensions. Okay, so, so there is a new API. in the share sheet? Is that, think that's what they mean? I do not know what they mean, but I would imagine when you start to use a very technical name like that, Safari extension versus Safari app extension, I would imagine it's a different API. And that if you log into developer.apple.com, there'll be two tabs, one for the old way of doing things, one for the new way of doing things. So I think that from a user point of view, we're not going to notice a change. But if you are the owner of an of a plugin, so if you're one password to someone, you're going to have to rewrite your app from one way of doing things to the other. Will be my educated guest. This happened on Firefox about five years ago where they completely changed their API and forced everyone to rewrite all their plugins. Hmm. So this sounds like a technology change where Apple has basically went, yeah, we did it one way, that's not a good idea, now we're doing it this way. Here's the new API, RTFM, rewrite your plugin. Thank you very much. Goodbye. I'm going to, let's see, did you already include a link in the show notes to the uh, changes to Safari 12? Yes, I did. The two of them, actually, one from Um, Security Week and one from TMO. Okay, I'm going to add the one from Apple where they put this in, where they talked about it. Excellent. Very interesting. I'm actually glad to hear that the other browsers are doing it as well, because I was sort of like, okay, now all those people who loved Firefox and and, uh, Chrome and uh, are going to just flee right back that started using uh, Safari. But if everybody loses it and there's a new way to do it that's safer, that... I guess that'd be okay. Uh, well, so I, mean, Apple I don't know why I care whether anybody uses right? Safari. But. So deprecated is basically a way of signaling to developers, you now have a year or two years or whatever to, to, to make the change. So it's an organized transition. So I, from a user point of view, this shouldn't, this is a technical minutia well, from a user point of view. No, 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 no. The ones you've installed that were not in the extensions, the extension store, they're dead. Okay, They're sure. Dead, 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 dead. Sure, I'm not arguing Overnight that at all. Overnight, without but telling the developers. Or, but your well. your 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 big extensions, like your one passwords and stuff, are not going to go away. 
they're just going to transition from one to the other. And so I consider iThoughts a pretty big app and their extension's gone. That's how I figured it out. And then I wrote to uh, Craig Scott, the the guy that wrote it, and he's like, what? And uh, so, yeah. I wonder if if Apple sent emails out to developers that went into a black hole somewhere for some people. I, I, I don't know. I'm not a registered developer at the moment, so I don't know exactly yeah. what Apple did and didn't communicate with developers. I used to be, but I, yeah. I keep forgetting to do that again. Yeah, it's possible you missed it. Somebody else, uh, I forget the other developer, it was something I didn't care about at all, so I didn't contact the developer. But yeah. uh, anyway. I haven't noticed anything. So okay. The whopping two extensions I use both still work. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's a, this week's Security Now is all about browser extensions, and there's some really scary stuff going on with extensions. Like There's like extensions that are warring with other extensions to try basically do, to be the only extension in there stealing people's CPU or whatever. So there's extensions that delete other extensions. It's this whole like ecosystem of warring tribes and stuff inside you know, Firefox and Chrome. So there's Yikes. a reason these browsers are working to lock this stuff down. It, right now, it's a, it's a jungle. Well, I care deeply because um, I just finished doing a video for iThoughts where I taught people how to install the extension. Ah, <laughs> don't. That's inconvenient. Yeah, it's all right. If that's the only thing that went wrong, that's a good day. True, true. Okay, so notable news. Um, good news. Everywhere, in every state in the United States of America, it is now free to freeze and unfreeze your credit file. Oh, look at that. I did not know that. Yeah, that is that is a big deal. It used to be free in some states and it used to be like a 10 or $15 fee in others. It is now free nationwide. So if you are at a point in your life where you're not constantly applying for loans, I would heartily recommend you freeze until you're at a point in your life where you do want to start applying for credit and then you can unfreeze briefly, do your thing and then refreeze because there is hmm. so much fraud out there, so much identity theft yeah if you can you should i think it would be would be my personal thinking on it anyway and now that it's free hey why the hell not you know go for it yeah um we have talked although not in great detail um about the fact that the eu are working on sort of gdpr for copyright so basically a rethinking of copyright at an eu wide level um and well, for the most like one. <laughs> part, it's quite sensible. But unfortunately, there are two controversial articles in this in this bill. Articles 11 and Article 13. Uh, one of them is nicknamed the Link Tax, and the other one is nicknamed Upload Filters. Um, now, the short version that made all the headlines is that the EU Parliament approved the bill over and above the objections of many tech groups. And that is factually true, but there's a subtle nuance that's been left out of a lot of the coverage. They didn't approve it in its original form. There were amendments put in which have weakened the provisions. So articles in 11 and 13 are still there, but they're not as evil as they were initially. I would still prefer if neither of them were there in any form, but it's not as bad as it was. So you can link to something without paying the link tax... You only have to pay the link tax on the new version if you also include a snippet. Yeah, so I include a sentence from TMO on my website. They, I have to pay them. Assu- no, assuming you're a corporate entity and assuming you meet a whole bunch of other criteria, if you were doing it for profit, then you would have to share some of your profit with them. 
So basically, the Googles and stuff, if they want to keep including snippets, are going to have to pay the sites they take the snippets from. Well, I think it's going to have a a more far-reaching effect if I don't misunderstand this. I mean, it's really, really common to read a tech blog that is writes a whole bunch of stuff that says, and then Fortune said, blah, 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 blah. You know, they no, put Fortune like said is not, that's, that's not what this is about. This is about you go to a search engine and there's whole pages of stuff where there's Big wait, wait, wait. Of, Why does it only have to be a search engine? Because the law isn't written to say you may not cite a website. The law is written to say that it's written in more complex legalese than that. It's not It's not anyone who links anywhere. It is... No, I'm not just saying links. I'm saying uh, you get a paragraph of what... That's a direct quote from Fortune that's over on TechCrunch. Right. It's, okay, but it's not about citations. It's about link list sites. It's about these big, long... It's basically about people who monetize, who sell... Just collections of links. It's not about someone citing something in an article. That is perfectly legitimate use. So 100% of the reporting I've heard on this is wrong then, because that's what they've been saying. Yeah, there's an awful lot of sensationalist stuff out there. And also, this article, remember, has been watered down and watered down over the past couple of months. So that may, the initial drafts may indeed have been that bad. And in fact, the version that was voted on two or three months ago was a lot worse than the version that passed this week. Well, it was the one this week that I've heard reported, I mean, like on Daily Tech News Show, which is fairly right, good But I don't think they said thing. that no blogger anywhere can quote another site. I mean, if DTNS said that, then, I, then it is my well, honest I, and genuine belief that they are wrong. I could be wrong, right? I am not a lawyer. But my honest and, and be genuine belief them, but- is that citation is not what this is about. This is not about hmm. nor uh, this is not about properly writing something citing things. This is about link sites. So uh, let me take a different example then. It's possible I extrapolated. Uh and so let's the possibility that Tom is way wrong is less likely than the possibility that Allison is way wrong. Um it's not impossible that that's true but less possible. Uh but my understanding would be like if you go to Google and you do a search and you get a some text that is from the article that lets you see whether that's a good article or not. That is exactly that, what it's that about. That would be illegal. No. That they no, would, no, it wouldn't that be they illegal. they would have to pay, sorry. Yes, precisely. They would have to pay a small Which makes fee Google to the worthless. author. Cond- if I'm just going to get a list of links and I don't know what it, which one okay, is but the no, one no, the that's intention is, about JavaScript? The intention is not that you just get a list of links. The intention is that the publishers of those websites get some revenue. The intention is not that the links go away. The intention is that people who write content get paid. What's but, driving yeah, this that's, is what's that's driving ridiculous. Okay, in, but, in my opinion, let me let me explain why I think it's ridiculous. So I do a search for um, insert uh, you know HTML by uh, by looking for an ID in jQuery, and one of the responses that I see, I read it, and it says it's about C plus plus. That was revealed because they did something that caused them to go higher that had nothing to do with what I was searching for. Why should they get paid for that? Okay, well, I don't think every site's going to get paid. It's about, basically, what it's about is sites with paywalls, news sites, being able to actually get some money for their journalism. That's what's driving this. What's driving this is the newspaper industry, which is facing an existential crisis and really feels that it's not okay for everyone to just take their articles and make a massive profit off them. To show me, to reveal a link with some text to I'm, their okay. site. All right. Okay, you're confusing me playing devil's advocate with me agreeing. Okay. <laughs> right? I don't even understand it. It does, I, it's okay. illogical. What it's about me, so. is about 
news websites getting paid for those snippets of news articles that show up in search engines. If you search news under, if you go into Google, you go to the news tab and you search, you generally speaking don't have to actually click on any of the stories because the headline in the first paragraph is usually all you care about. How many people died? What terrible thing happened? Okay, I'm done. And the newspaper industry Mm. is in an existential crisis and they feel that this is wrong and they have lobbied the European Parliament and that's where this law comes from. That's where this article comes from. That is the, I un- that is I the reason why it they're doing it. Yeah, I understand that. But I'm I'm looking at Google News right now, top stories, headlines, and it gives me a headline, political, a headline, New York Times, a headline, CNN, headline, Washington Examiner. I mean, it, 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 there's no text at all underneath them. There's maybe a subheading. Just, you know, what I, I don't know. What are you on? I'm on news.google.com, top stories, headlines. No, so you do a Google search, just search search for Judge Kavanaugh and then click the news tab. Just do a Google search, George, I don't even know how he spells his name, but probably not the Irish way. It's all A's. N-A-U-G-H. And then you click on news. Okay, it says, the manner in which tweets. U.S. Senate Republicans and Brett Kavanaugh's supposed allies are championing judges' innocence should sting as the dot-dot-dot-dot-dot. Yeah, pro- well, conservative I, I comment. get part of a sentence. I, I get part of a sentence with a dot-dot-dot so I can get some clue of whether how long ago was it and does it have anything to do with what I just searched for. Yeah, they so should be Google paid are for pro- that? Google are probably not the best example. There's sites that, that take entire paragraphs with their links. So Google. So I thought they were me. really after Google, is what everybody said that this is about Google. I think it's more about Facebook and those kind of sites, actually. Anyway, mm-hmm. anyway, look, I, I'm anyway. not here to defend the law because I don't. I wish <laughs> the bloody thing hadn't passed, right? Okay. I'm just saying what they did pass is not as bad as what they almost passed a few weeks ago, and it's not as bad as what they started with. Started this process, <laughs> and the other thing that's gotten watered down as well is the forced filters and uploads. They're now applying in less cases to less people. So basically more oh. caveats. Oh, good. Well, because that was the other thing was if you like they were saying YouTube would have to scan before something arrived on the Internet. Yeah. Now as the, it was uploaded. The big sites are still uh, YouTube does this already. So for YouTube, this makes no difference. And basically they've rewritten it in such a way that it is only going to affect the really big sites who are all already doing it anyway. So podfeet.com hmm. and you know small sites are not going to be affected by this. And the big sites are already doing this. So I think that means this law is going to have extremely little effect. Which is hmm. fine by me. Because again, I wish it hadn't passed. So. Yeah. So again, it's more watered down. So I'm looking at it in a glass half full sort of way. It's like, well, I wish they hadn't passed anything. But you know something? I'd rather that they passed a watered down version than the original version if they must pass something. So that's all I really wanted yeah. to say, really. Um, the link to the article in The Verge will give you some more details. But basically, it did pass this time. It failed last time. It did pass this time. But between the last vote and this vote, it has been watered down. Both of those provisions have had more ifs and buts and basically more caveats to exclude more people from it. And that's not a bad thing, that more people are excluded. Well, good. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I'm stretching to call it a good news story, but anyway, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, rather controversially, and I, I sort of, I can't help but comment on the Orwellian genius of this. The U.S. defense have a new policy in how the U.S. military does cyber attacks. What they don't want to call it cyber attacks, 
what the US is going to do is it's going to defend forward. That's actually code for preemptive attack. You defend forward by attacking first. (laughs) Okay. So defend forward means attack first, and that is now acceptable policy for the US government's cyber division. In, In cyber attacks. In cyber attacks. But they call it defend forward because our policy is purely defensive, don't you know? But we're going to attack first. Hmm. It's a dangerous game, is what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Because it's quite easy to retaliate against someone who attacks you first. And if they call it defend forward, it doesn't stop you attacking back. And it is a known fact that the Russians are in the US power grid. Completely, totally, not really. They have it owned. They just haven't pushed the button to blow it up. But if you attack forward... Defend forward. Sorry, defend forward. Yes. <laughs> sorry, I was being too honest. If you defend forward, I don't see why an attacker who's already in all of these advanced persistent threats we've heard about for years. If you if you defend forward, they're going to defend backward and blow stuff up. It's it's a risky game. And the fact that the rules of engagement have changed doesn't mean they're going to do this immediately, but it does now mean that it is an option that the generals have at their disposal without the need for approval from their political overlords. It is very noteworthy and a definite change in policy. So that's why it's, it's here. Um, there is a bug in Safari, which, uh, which has the potential to get you into trouble, which is why I need to tell you about it. Um, because Safari does something in the wrong order, it is possible to have a page intentionally fail to load... And in so doing, have the address bar say a URL that is not the URL of the current page. So the way this would be a danger of attack would be that you would make a web page that looks like paypal.com. You would get the person to go to that web page. And on that web page, you would use JavaScript to redirect them in a specific way to another web page that doesn't actually exist. And you can arrange it in such a way that the address bar says paypal.com but your page is still showing oh that's clever it's clever now (laughs) it is clever and dangerous however uh, there are some telltale signs this is happening to you Uh, the blue little progress bar and the address bar will be moving because it's trying to load a non-existent web page and also the padlock won't be there because it hasn't finished loading the page so it's not actually a page well, it's your—it's a leftover page of where you were, but the address bar already says where you're trying to go. Oh. But because Safari... A truncate, time in the middle attack. Yeah, but it can be a minute or two where you're hovering in this limbo, which can be enough time to trick people. And the thing is, Safari... And this is mostly a good thing. Safari shows you only the core part of the URL. It doesn't show you the full URL. And one of the things it omits is the port number. So you basically try to redirect the browser to paypal.com port 5152 or something nonsensical. And it will time out and it will just sit there timing out. And while it's sitting there timing out, your fake eBay page is visible. eBay's actual domain is in the URL bar, but you're not really there. It's subtle. Now, the, the padlock yeah, I, will no, not be there. I didn't catch how, how you stick the wrong one in there. You use JavaScript they... and you exploit the fact that there's a mistake in how Safari does things. It's, it's a so JavaScript the, But the JavaScript has to be in the previous In the previous page, page which is at a URL that could be anything. So you still got to trick someone to visit your website. But once they've visited your website, you can bounce them on in such a way that their address bar lies to them. 
But you'd have to be bouncing them onto somewhere they wanted to go. No, somewhere you were faking. I know, but that if they I'm would on plausibly believe IE, for some reason, right? So you might have a website, yeah. So I ha- I have a website, and I'm offering something for a stupidly cheap price. I- I'm offering oh, okay. some okay. sort of fabulous deal. You now want to go to PayPal or whatever to pay me for that amazingly good deal, and I then bounce you to my fake PayPal page. Got you. Okay. Okay. I was trying to think, how would they get you to go there? Okay. Or wow. you know, that's, basically, it's social that's engineering. Clever. It, it is clever. Uh, but as I say, the giveaway is there will be no padlock because the page is not yet secure because it hasn't even loaded properly. And Safari correctly doesn't show the padlock. It does show the wrong URL, but it doesn't show the padlock. And it will also show the progress bar being half complete. So if you're going to type something and there's a progress bar still going and no padlock, stop and you'll be fine. Okay. And I'm sure Apple so will So essentially the, the advice hasn't changed. Yeah. Thank goodness the padlock isn't there. One. Yeah. Thank goodness yeah. the padlock isn't yeah. there. There is another Safari bug, which has nothing to do with that bug we've just talked about. Uh, This one has to do with um, HTML and CSS. There's a new feature in CSS that allows for blurring of background layers by forward layers, by more forward layers entirely in CSS. And someone discovered if you take a few hundred layers and apply this blur to each layer, you can crash Safari. This is an utterly unrealistic thing to do. But, of course, it shouldn't crash Safari. In fact, it doesn't just crash Safari. It crashes the entire kernel. It takes down the person's iPhone or Mac all the way down. So it's a denial-of-service attack. So it's just mean. It's just plain old mean. You send them an email and mail that app, reads the HTML, trips over itself and pulls your whole Mac down, or trips over itself and reboots your iPhone. Not re-springboards. A full-on kernel panic, reboot the whole thing. Hmm. Again, this will be fixed in a software update, but it isn't. So for now, there is a possibility some mean person will reboot your phone on you, which is just annoying. Don't do it. Yes. Um, some, I think, well, I'm going to call this good news. So Google have built a password generator and password manager into Chrome. So they basically hmm. re-implemented their whole password management because their password management was the worst of all the browsers. And now they've joined the modern world and they have a pretty darn decent offering. Now, it's not going to compete with a full-on LastPass family plan or a one-password family plan or a one-password corporate plan. Like, it's not going to compete with that. What it is going to compete with, though, is any other browser's native in-browser stuff, because it's going to synchronize it through the cloud. It does proper encryption this time, instead of leaving the stuff on your disk in plain text like it did for years. <laughs> they've reimagined it, and they've done it well, and they've also made it very easy to use different passwords on every site and to generate secure passwords right within the browser without stressing you out. And that's a good thing. Yeah. So, um. Belgium security research. I like the way you did manage to make say something obnoxious under your breath there, though. <laughs> I'm still not going to use it because I don't trust Google <laughs> with my passwords, but I also don't trust yeah. Google with my web browsing. I don't use Chrome. So. Um, Belgian security researchers have found a significant vulnerability in Tesla key fobs. Basically, they don't have enough encryption on them, so you can. Oh, I heard about this. Fake yeah. a key fob. So Tesla have two solutions to this, if you have an affected Tesla. Solution one is a firmware update to your car, which puts a pin on it. So yes, the person can clone your key, but they also need to know your pin before they can drive off. So that is an interesting approach to this problem. Yeah, my buddy Ron just said, hey, I got to go home. I got to get a uh, firmware update to my car. And he told, told us about that. That's pretty interesting. It is interesting. The other solution is to get a new key. Not for free. 
They want to charge you for the pleasure of getting a new key. <laughs> now, I think that's obnoxious. They have made an insecure key fob and they want you to pay for a new key? That's mm. not like the Tesla's cheap. Come on, Elon. Well, Stop accusing innocent I, I people have, of pedophilia and give people cheap keys. I have an uh I have an insecure key fob, right? Am I, I mean, aren't all uh key fobs insecure? I don't know if and all key fobs are, but many, many car companies have had to reissue keys. Hmm. I just, I thought they all were. I thought there was a way with, you know, directional antennas and blah, blah, blah to do it. No, this isn't, no, no, this isn't, this isn't extending the range of your key fob. That is an, that is an attack, right? So you hit your key and then that one-time code is then broadcast further than it should go. Mm-hmm. But this is cloning the key. Oh. So you actually get the private key out and you can, at your will, trigger an unlock, which is not a range extension attack. This is different. The private key should never come out. So basically, what's happening over the airwaves when you use a key fob is effectively the same as a, as a, as a one-time code in two-factor offs. It should be different every time based on a private key that's inside the key fob. And so the car knows the private key and the key fob knows the private key and therefore they can... Without ever sharing the private key, they can share encrypted information in such a way that they know that each other knows the secret. This allows did the you secret already, Did you already say whether they had to have physical access to the key to get that? They need to intercept you twice. Which is very, very little. So if they see two times you've used your key, they can break it. See? I mean, they're nearby. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, yes. I mean, they need to they need to see an emanation from the key, right? The key doesn't have an IP address. It can't be a remote attack. It has to it has to be. They need to see some RF. But normally, for this kind of a cloning attack, you would need to see hundreds or thousands of transactions before you can figure out the private key if it was properly random. They can do it in two, which is spectacularly little. Oh wow! And the reason they can do it in two is because it's a forty bit encryption key. Forty bits. That's a joke. Jeez. That is an absolute joke. 128-bit mm. keys are banned from the internet for HTTPS because they're too insecure. <laughs> 128. We now have to use at least 40? 256. This is 40. Jeez. Yeah, not good enough. Clearly not good enough, and hence the Belgians are able to do their thing. Now, I, I, I'm not going to comment on whether this is good news or bad news, but make of it what you will. The four major U.S. carriers, them being AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint, have gotten together and announced something they're calling Project Verify. And this is basically a, an online authentication system for users of those cell phone carriers where they will use stuff that only they can see as a man-in-the-middle attacker, basically. And they will authenticate you to websites if you're on your own phone. Or you can use it as two-factor auth if you don't trust them. And it will only work on websites that choose to support the service because it's not using an open standard. They've gone and made up their own. So they're mm. hailing this as the end of passwords. You can just use your phone and you'll be magically authenticated on the websites that choose to support this new Project Verify feature. A, I think it's going to fail. And B, I don't think they've earned my trust. Yeah. Yeah, it's not the list of people that I think of first as being any good at this yeah i'm going to delegate my security to you people because you've just lost all of my data what oh last week (laughs) i mean it was literally in the last episode we talked about major data breaches at AT at&t and t-mobile if memory serves it was a verizon i don't remember which of them it was they all leak data verizon but lots of times it's at&t 
Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, okay, you're right. It's a problem to be solved. And in a hypothetical world where you guys had earned our trust, you're in a position where you can actually do some cool stuff because you are a man in the middle. I'm not sure you've earned your user's trust. I don't think if you ask the the average American to rate the trustworthiness of their ISP, that they're going to rate it highly. I mean, I know I don't live in America, but I still get the distinct impression you guys aren't giant fans. (laughs) It's a love-hate thing. I wonder about norms, though. I mean, normal people might just be thinking it's too expensive and that's the only thing they think about. Not the, They probably don't know that they drop our passwords and but aren't they also give deep, away our SIM card numbers. Don't they also think that they're deeply immoral because every time they try to get them on uh, customer support, they get a terrible experience? Like I, The impression I get is that normal people hate their cell phone carriers, not because they lose their passwords, but just because they're horrible to deal with. Well, don't don't confuse them with our ISPs, our like our house. Well, some ISPs. of them are the same, right? Verizon. You does might be both. conflating them. Doesn't Verizon mm, do both? Yeah, like yeah, and AT and T does both, but usually it's it's you know the Comcast and Time Warners, and uh, they keep changing their names to try to make us not remember how much we hate them. We hate I, them more. <laughs> yeah, I thought the cell carriers were on that list too, with their limited, unlimited, and all this other cardology. Yeah, yeah, been okay, doing. there's a little bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I it's a level of venom. <laughs> yeah, it's a spectrum. Anyway, but they're all on the wrong end of the curve. Anyway, um, your home state has done something interesting. Uh, the California State Senate has passed a bill which makes a first start at regulating the security of IoT devices. So the bill is now waiting for Governor Brown to either sign it or veto it. We don't know what he will do. And last I checked, he hadn't done anything yet. So we still don't know. This mm. bill is interesting because... It doesn't try to do everything, which is probably a good way to start this process. Um, Some people are criticizing it for being vague, and other people are praising it for being vague. And I think I'm I'm inclined to praise it because I think it should state the goals rather than trying, rather than, basically the criticism is, but it doesn't say what specific technological thing the company should be doing. And I'm like, yeah, because that's not something that you want written into legislation. Right, legislation takes years to change. Technology moves in a minute. You do not want to be writing your exact technical specifications into your laws. So, what the law actually says is that uh, makers of IoT devices must provide adequate levels of or appropriate levels of security for the features they offer in their devices. And that's exactly how these kind of laws should be written, in my humble opinion. Because what that means is going to change over time. But what you want to happen is the same. You want companies not to be careless. Right, right. Sometimes when you get really specific, that's when you're stupid. You know, yeah. that's that's when you you can over constrain the system to where it can't it can't be met, or it doesn't last. Right? That okay? That's true today, and then the day after tomorrow, when new technology is out there, now it doesn't apply. So you need to have s- less constraining words. I guess is the, the yeah. Phrase. State the desired outcome. Yeah, not, and leave the mechanics to the techie people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, don't, don't, don't prescribe, <laughs> right? Because yeah, exactly. You'll have a loophole before you can sneeze, right? Oh well, right. the law says this. Well, if I just change this little tiny little one to a zero over here, now I don't meet the law anymore, and I'm still completely insecure, and I'm still stealing all of your data. But look, I'm compliant with this useless law. So, yeah. no, so I'm definitely in the camp of no, no. The legislation should say what should happen and leave the techie stuff out of the legislation. And either way, this is, I mean, it's not particularly, this is not the answer. This is a step towards a better world. A step. And it hasn't even been signed by the governor yet. But it is nonetheless interesting to see California lead the way again. And it has 
piqued a lot of people's interest in sort of reviving uh, federal level bills that have been languishing sort of, you know, unloved and not getting any attention. And now people are sort of blowing the dust off them going, you know, we should probably get back to this. I think there might be important stuff here. And yeah, there is important stuff here. So that's also a good side effect. So we should see what happens. But it's it's interesting to see California take the lead. Good. And then the final important news story, um, owners of Western Digital MyCloud NAS devices need to be aware that security researchers have gone public and said that the company has failed to patch a vulnerability they told them about a year ago. Uh, so if you really? have, yeah, so if you have a MyCloud NAS device from Western Digital, you need to read the security, the naked security article and figure out if it affects what you do with your device and how you're going to respond. Thanks. So, PSA's tips and advice. We're into suggested reading, so we'll go through these more quickly. Uh, the PSA tips and advice, there's lots of stuff here to do with iOS. I can't imagine why. Um, how to airdrop passwords between devices can be very handy for sharing uh, a password with people um, who Ooh. come to visit you, because airdrop, of course, doesn't need them to be already on your network. So you can airdrop them the password to your Wi-Fi, because airdrop is over Bluetooth. Or it can be over Bluetooth. Uh, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. Yeah, exactly. Basically, AirDrop will... You have to have both turned on. You can't have only one. Yeah, okay. Bluetooth doesn't require connectivity to an existing wireless network. It uses peer-to-peer Wi-Fi frequencies. The point is you can share your (laughs) Wi-Fi password. That's what I was trying to say. Um, Basically, you don't have a chicken and an egg. You don't have to be on the Wi-Fi to use AirDrop to share the Wi-Fi password. Right. But if you do like I do and turn off Wi-Fi when you're doing recordings to ensure you're using Ethernet, you can't use AirDrop. Um, yes, because AirDrop uses Bluetooth to negotiate a point-to-point wireless network. Is actually what's happening under the hood. And the, But it's, you have to have Wi-Fi turned on. Right. That's, it uses Bluetooth yeah. to negotiate a point-to-point wireless network. So you're making... Well, so you're using, you're Bluetooth doing a, can be there without Wi-Fi uh, is a wireless network of sorts, isn't it? No, no. Okay. Let me... Okay, AirDrop <laughs> uses Bluetooth to create a point-to-point Wi-Fi network. There we go. <laughs> that, that's what it's actually doing under the hood, but they hide all that as secret sauce. The, in theory, when it works, and I have to say for me, it's been working really well of late, touch all of the wood everywhere. It's just black magic, but it's actually not magic. It's Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. Yeah, mine stopped working. <laughs> my watch stopped unlocking my Mac. Oh, no. It's oh, no, that would drive me nuts. I, yeah, I, it, it comes and goes. It'll be back. I've never figured out why it leaves. It'll leave for a month or so, and then it'll go, oh, I'm back. I'm good. Uh, I, I'm afraid to say it, but I have three Macs, and all three of them are working absolutely flawlessly with my watch, and I'm just... I can't I'm, reach I'm, your Macs from here. It, they'll be fine. Okay, I hope so, because I really like that feature. I'm so used to just showing up, and I get the little tap on the wrist, and I start working. It's great. Uh, okay, so... Apple have released their iOS security guide, uh, sorry, their iOS 12 security guide along with iOS 12, which was nice of them to release them together. Uh, There's a bunch of articles about the different cool new security features in iOS 12. I think the coolest one, certainly from my point of view, is autofill of passwords from third-party password managers. So there's some articles. It's glorious. You just tap on on any field that wants a password and up it'll say, oh, did you want to get this password from one password? Yes, I would. Look at my face. Good, done. Yeah. Basically, Except one, when Steve has a password to that same site, and then you have to do more taps to get to your own because Steve's, for some reason, are head of Allison's. <laughs> oh, that's a pity. But the great thing is, third-party password managers, whether you're a LastPass or a OnePassword user, they're now first. They are they are as integrated into the OS as Keychain, and that's brilliant. 
So they're first class citizens. No more yeah. share sheet. I love this so much. And as yeah, someone it's, pointed it's out, the best thing ever. I think it was was it Brian Chafin on the the, the the Apple Context Machine. Some podcaster pointed out that you know that on iOS, the one password experience is now better than on the Mac. Because on the Mac, uh, you need a plug-in in every browser, and it doesn't work outside the browser. Whereas in iOS, it works inside apps too. What do you mean? What doesn't work outside of the browser? As in the one password extension oh. won't, won't fill in a password in iTunes. Right, right, right. Yeah. Whereas an, an yeah, iOS, it can. Yep. So it's actually for now, and I'm sure Apple will, these APIs, they're, they're going to come to the Mac too eventually, I'm sure. But they've actually made this better on iOS, which is kind of bizarre because iOS didn't even used to have cut, copy, and paste. And now we have better one password integration than we do on the Mac, which is our general purpose machine. It's an interesting turn of events. Yeah, yeah. Um, given that your president is about to make use of this unturnoffable nationwide presidential alert, lots of websites are also telling people, by the way, in America, your phone has all sorts of other alerts that you can control. So there's like amber alerts on your iPhone. Wait, How- what alert is he about to turn on that we can't turn off? It's, Did you tell us about that already? I didn't because I'm not really sure it's a security story, but it, it's basically oh, okay. there's a thing called a presidential alert, which every cell carrier in the US must carry and must send to every phone in the US. And they're going to do a test of the system because it's never been tried. Basically, this was invented after 9-11 and no one's ever pushed the button. So it's entirely hypothetical for now. In theory, it works, but no one's ever tried. And like, it's probably a good idea to try it before the first catastrophe. I remember uh, one of the you know dark humor comments after 9-11. They did not turn on the emergency broadcast system. They didn't, actually. And everybody's like, so... W- when? <laughs> what is your threshold? What is it going to take for you to turn that thing on that you've been testing for 40 years, interrupting our TV shows? Oh, of course, yeah, because it's that really annoying tone. Now, I know it's supposed to be an annoying tone because it's supposed to get your attention, but it's quite an annoying tone. They were really good at yeah, engineering that tone. and they did not turn it on. That that apparently didn't make anybody's radar screen. I guess, what were they, they going to tell you to do? Whereas in the case of a nuclear attack, they're going to tell you to hide under your desk and duck and cover. <laughs> yeah. Not sure it'll help, but they'll tell you to do it anyway. Right. Anyway, so the Amber Alerts you actually can control, and there's it's, it's a good excuse to talk about them. So there's a link to an iMore article about them. Uh, and the UK, a UK law enforcement agency called Action Fraud, which is just a cool name, um, they've issued an alert to people to say that there is a big uptick in uh, phishing attacks against Netflix accounts. So you get an email that pretends to be from Netflix telling you there's a problem with your account and you're about to lose your service, but if you just click on this link here and re-enter your payment details, your Netflix will continue. Don't click on the link. You're about to give your credit card details to a complete and utter stranger. Yeah. PSA. Uh, lots of stuff here in notable breaches and privacy violations. Um, backup company Veeam managed to utterly embarrass themselves by exposing 445 million records of their customers. <laughs> GovPay, uh, sorry, GovPayNow.com, which is some sort of US local government thing for taking money off people, managed to leak 14 million records. Well done. Uh, Grinder are still leaking your location data. They say that it's, yes, but it's it's like a grid in an atlas. Well, someone's done the math. The grid in the atlas they leak your location at is 18 inches across. <laughs> yes, we've obscured your data to 18 square inches. 
thanks. That'll wow. keep me safe in a country where homosexuality is illegal. Wow. Yes, I'm being a bit snarky because they've had quite some time to fix this. And what's worse is they think they have. And they absolutely have. They told everybody haven't. they did. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and yet another misconfigured MongoDB. So basically, the Veeam leak was a MongoDB. Lots and lots of leaks we've talked on this segment over the years have been misconfigured MongoDB instances. Uh, and this one's kind of a bizarre story. 43 gigabytes worth of user data, 10 million users, has been leaked through a misconfigured MongoDB. And we actually don't know who owns it. We just know that oh, all of these geez. user accounts have been leaked, but we don't even know who to blame. Oh, oh. That's how bad Yikes. it is. There's some circumstantial evidence that implies it might be Saver Spy, which is a part of coupon.com, but they have not said it was them. So that is purely circumstantial. There is a whole bunch of stories about election stuff and security, which is probably not surprising given that there's an election on the way and security is an issue. So they're all clumped together in the new section of suggested reading. There's one that sort of caught my eye because... I've been saying for years that if you want to be secure, it's much easier to secure an iOS device than an Android device because there's no middlemen. And it would appear that the Democratic National Committee agree and they've asked their people to start using iPhones instead of Androids because they're easier to secure. And given what happened I saw last that. time... That was, that was amazing. I mean, they just said, yeah. What I, what I liked about the what they wrote was, we aren't saying this is forever and that Apple's just the best thing ever. This is not a religious thing. Yeah, and they actually when said Google that. Google catches up, we'll be fine. Okay, but this is just about security. No, we're not taking a vote on this. Yeah, <laughs> which is correct, good. right? And you're supposed to reevaluate your security, and the current reality is supposed to determine your security, not not your whims and not what what was true in the past. And so they're entirely correct to say that right now, today, this is what you should do to be secure, because it's just easier. Because you, there, it is possible to have secure Android devices, but it's very hard to explain to people the difference between, no, 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 you can buy that one, but not this one, and you have to configure it this way and not that way. And if you get it from this carrier, then it's not trustworthy. But if you get the same identical phone from this other carrier, it is trustworthy. They just can't manage that, and who can? Whereas it's much easier to say, install the, buy an iPhone, stick the latest version of iOS on it, and every time it says a little badge, update it. Done. Or turn on audio updates. Done, done. Um, the only other one that, um, sort of caught my eye is that, uh, Tidbits have an interesting article on security and privacy protections, uh, and the usability challenges they throw up in Mojave. Um, it's an opinion piece that may be of interest to people. Basically, Apple are sort of facing the eternal battle of, yeah, we want to make it more secure, but we also want to make it easier to use, and it's an interesting challenge for them. And so tidbits go into that. I thought that was perhaps worthy of drawing people's attention to. Other than that, there's lots of other stuff suggested reading, but there's none of it that particularly I feel the need to highlight. Okay. And well, I don't have that a palate was a, cleanser. Uh, that, but you don't have a palate cleanser. Let me see just a second. I think I just remembered when I might have. Oh, good. Um, it's a, it's a joke against Apple uh, by my, uh, by my contractor that's building my house. Oh, shoot. Oh. Where did it go? It was hilarious. Well, he thought it was hilarious. It wasn't that funny, but he <laughs> thought it was really funny. Um, let me find it. It's a cartoon. He's big on text messaging. He's. Uh, I, I will tell you, for, here's an interesting security thought. I could just tell this story. Um, you know, I got the August smart lock, and yes. it turns out that's a really good thing for working with contractors. Because normally what you have to do is um, give a, a key to them. Right. If you 
give them a key, they can copy that key, right? Yeah, so in theory, every time you have a different country, you need to change all your locks if you're going to be truly secure. Right. Or And they say, oh, well, you can just stick one under a rock and then we'll tell all of the subcontractors where it is. You know, we've had painters and plumbers and, and, and electrical yeah. people and, and destructo people and, and stain people and drywall people. I mean, there have yeah. been 20 different people that have come through my house. And uh, instead of doing that, we gave we have a contractor and a subcontractor, two main guys. We simply gave them the privilege to open the phones, uh, the doors for uh, for the contractor. So the paint guy shows up. He calls one of these guys or texts him, says, I'm here. And he unlocks the door for him. Oh, brilliant. And when they're and when we're done, we can rescind that and they don't still have it. Yes, because unlike a physical key, there is no way for them to copy that access. And when you right. revoke it, it is actually revoked. That is that is fantastic, yeah. actually. That is that is really good. And I presume you can do things like set up time limits and stuff, because I, I know that those smart locks can do clever things like if the cleaning lady comes every Thursday, then her key will only work or her phone will only work on Thursdays between blah and blah time and stuff like that. So it, there are real advantages. To this. Like some of these smart locks are actually smart. Yeah. Um, I will tell you guys uh, one little thing that I haven't told the contractors. In order for them to be able to remotely unlock the door, I had to give them the same privileges I have. Ooh. So technically, they could lock me out of the house. They could revoke my privileges. <laughs> well, that's they an are super users. Yeah. I I don't think that's any worse than a key. I mean, they could it's no worse the than locks. a key, right? A little, because eh, a contractor, could, I mean, a if anyone could change the locks behind your back, it's a contractor. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that makes me feel a little bit better. But it was it, they can unlock the door themselves without having full privileges, but they can't do it from a distance, which is what they have to be able to do to let somebody in without having to drive over. And it, yeah, that is sort of delegating the ability to delegate is not the normal model, all right. So you ha- yeah, which is why you've had to make them a super user. Yeah, but they could delegate, like you say, they could add somebody else to it. But I just didn't tell them they have those privileges, and I don't think they've noticed. Hopefully, yeah, it's interesting. You should feed that back to August because that that that's an interesting use case. They might want to they might want to yeah, add support. have a middle tier. Yeah, exactly. Basically, allow remote unlock, but not allow manage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should do that. I will. Well, how's that for a palate cleanser? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's different. I like it though. It's cool. I, I like good <laughs> stories. Okay. Um, I just noticed my voice is getting all scratchy and sore, so I guess it's about time I stop talking. It sounds good. This was this was good, Bart. Really enjoyed it as always. Excellent. Well, until next time, stay patched, stay secure. And don't forget to install that iOS 12 goodness and everything. And uh, coming in just a few days' time, you get to do it all with Mojave as well. Yay! All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. Haven't had a good dumb question since I uh, answered Linda's. Anyway, you can send those in to me at allison at podfeet.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you should check out at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. If you want to support the show on Patreon, podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you want to join our Facebook group, podfeet.com slash Facebook. There's some trick questions to get in, so you got to get through Steve the Gatekeeper to get into there. But if you want to join our Google Plus community, there are no questions to jump over, no hoops to jump over, and you get there by going to podfeet.com slash Google Plus. If you want to join the live chat room, it's podfeet.com slash chat. 
And actually, you can go in there when it's not live. Not a lot of activity, but sometimes it happens. And if you want to use those Amazon affiliate links, go to podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.